Well, tonight we are looking at the second stanza of the longest psalm in the Bible, as you know. It's also the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We were trying to determine what would be a great title for the whole series, and we thought the glory of God's Word was a good way to summarize it. We don't know the author for sure, but many, like me, uh, believe it was Daniel who authored this psalm. What we do know is that it is a magnificent psalm. It is a psalm that does highlight the majesty and the glory and the power and the richness of the Word of God. One commentator, Kidner, calls it this, Psalm 119 is the giant among the psalms. Well, Kevin kicked it off last week looking at the first stanza, but also giving some introductory information. And as Kevin pointed out in the introduction to this psalm, Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. It is divided into stanzas. Each stanza has eight verses in it, and each of the eight verses within a particular stanza all start with the same Hebrew letter, so you do not see that in the English translation. So by the end of the psalm, all 22 of the Hebrew letters have been used in the 22 stanzas. Uh, Kidner, the commentator Kidner again writes, it is an alphabet of prayers and reflections on the Word of God, giving each Hebrew letter its turn to introduce eight eight successive verses on the subject. Kevin also pointed out this last week that there are several different synonyms for Scripture that are found in the psalm that the psalmist uses. Uh, There's the term law, which is the chief term and heard the most often, Uh, the term testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and then there's another different term, Hebrew term for word, that's also used. It can also be translated promise. And as well as these synonyms, there are other expressions that do uh, speak about this idea of God's self-revelation, His revelation of Himself, not so much synonyms for the law or truth, but words like His ways, His name, His faithfulness. Well, tonight, as I said, we're looking at the second stanza of eight verses, so that means verses 9 through 16. And following the acrostic arrangement, the Hebrew letter highlighted is the second letter then of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter, uh, the letter Beth, B-E-T-H, Beth. Now last week, uh, the eight verses all began with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. So by the end of this, you're going to know the Hebrew alphabet. That was Aleph last week. In a sense, that would be their letter A. That's stretching it just a bit, but in the same kind of stretching sense tonight, each of these verses begin with the letter Beth, which would be their B, so to speak. Well, in this Beth stanza, personal sanctification is the focus. Look at verse 9, and you find the term pure. There's a Hebrew, then root of that, most Hebrew terms have three consonants in them. The root of the word is, is made up of three consonants. There's no vowels in Hebrew. All the, 
the vowel sounds uh, have been added through the centuries, little markings to help us know how to pronounce them. Uh, you can't buy a vowel. There are no vowels. But it's a three-letter root, and so the three Hebrew letters that form the root of this term is Z and K and H. That's the primary term then in Hebrew for purity. And so that functions as a thematic heading for this stanza, the idea of purity. So let's walk through verses 9 to 16 together. It's a section that I've entitled titled, The Pursuit of Purity. Now, I've divided this stanza into four main parts, so that's how we'll walk through it tonight, four main parts. Here's the first part, what we're calling, number one, the universal challenge, the universal challenge. The psalmist begins this section of the psalm with the understanding of what our greatest danger is. Our greatest danger is sin. He is aware, just by what he writes, he is aware that sin is like a deadly virus. It's a virus that spreads and defiles and destroys. And since it's a universal virus, everybody needs protection from it. Yet, though sin is universal in the scope of its effect, the psalmist here in this verse 9 mentions only one example sort of like a test case, if you will, that represents everyone. He says in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now that is a significant question because we live in a very impure world. Our culture is one in which all kinds of sin is just accepted. It's a culture in which lying and cheating and pettiness and jealousy and hatred and cursing and sexual obsession. It's all just normal. And there's pressure, pressure to conform in all the different categories of worldliness that exist and all the categories of idolatry and all conform to all the wicked agendas that are swirling around right now. What a challenge it is to stay pure or to stay clean in such an environment. And yet, for God's people, purity must be a priority. We must take, just to broaden the idea of purity for a moment, we must take a biblical stand on every issue, and even more important, we must persevere in fighting temptation, personal temptation to sin. That fight is part of our ongoing progressive sanctification. The theological term that describes maturing spiritually, growing in Christ-likeness, that's sanctification. So the psalmist tackles this issue with this rhetorical question, and he discusses, therefore, in the psalm here, the basics of personal sanctification. Now, the term how in this rhetorical question that begins the stanza is literally, by what means? By what means can we stay pure? And the term translated pure does mean to be clean. It means to remain uh, innocent of charges. So this man is asking an important question, and based on what else is said in Psalm 119, it is best to conclude that the psalmist is speaking of himself first of all, when he says a young man. He's a young man. 
He's representing everybody, but he's asking the question from a personal standpoint. How can a young man keep his way pure in this world? And this was written how long ago? I mean, it's as if he wrote it today. But the universal challenge is for anyone of God's people to keep himself or keep herself pure, clean in this impure world, whether you're young or older. And this is not the only place this universal challenge is acknowledged in Scripture. Here's a couple of other verses where the same kind of thought is conveyed in Job chapter 25, verse 4. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who's born of a woman? In other words, born a human being in this world. How can he ever be clean? Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? Well, those verses and other verses give the impression then that purity ends up being an unattainable standard. Purity in this impure world is an unattainable moral idea, ideal. That's the way it's presented. And let me just say that that's the right presentation. It is. At least in light of biblical harmardiology and anthropology. Harmardiology, the doctrine of sin. In light of that, it is an unattainable standard. Scripture teaches that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin. Our thinking, our willing, our conscience, our bodies, every faculty of us is tainted by sin. That's the effect of the fall on all mankind. But that reality does not abolish, that reality does not nullify that the follower of Christ, God's people, are to pursue that goal of purity. If we are true believers, we have something. We're not like the rest of the world. True believers are regenerate. True believers have spiritual life. True believers have a new orientation toward the Lord, which means we have the desire to fight against the pull of our flesh. We have the resources to draw upon the fight against the pull of our flesh. And flesh remains our unredeemed humanness that we carry with us until we're glorified. We, we have the resources and the desire to fight against the flesh. We have the resources and desire to fight against the pull of the world. We have the desire and the resources to fight even against the wiles of the devil. That's the way the Bible expresses our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we are expected by the Lord to pursue a life of purity regardless of the reality that we will not attain it perfectly. We will not be perfect in this pursuit of purity. Now back to our verse, more specifically, notice that the psalmist calls the life of purity, he calls it a way. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's a figurative term which refers to our lifestyle. Our conduct, our, our character, our lifestyle. You could even call it our, our course of life. Our course of life, our thoughts, our desires ought to be brought into harmony and made equivalent with God's way. And God's way is the way of purity. So how do we do this? How do we keep on the way of purity 
Look at his answer, verse 9. By keeping it according to your word. So I said the challenge is universal, but the answer is universal. The key is drawing strength from and living, he says, according to Scripture. That's a preposition there, according to. And I know you were thinking that. You were going, that's a preposition. I wonder if he's going to say something about that. That's a preposition. It's a preposition according to that expresses conformity to a standard, conformity to a rule. And the standard we must conform to is the Word, the Word of God. Now here, that's a Hebrew term, one of the synonyms for truth that I mentioned earlier. It's a Hebrew term that's the most general of all, the three consonants that form this Hebrew word are D and B and R, davar. It's a very general term, the most general term of all the synonyms. It embraces God's truth in any form it might find. God's truth in the form of statements, God's truth in the form of promises, God's truth in the form of commandments. That's this word, word. And this is one of the roles then of the word, is to give us a standard. The Word gives us a rule of life so we know what sanctification looks like, so we know what holiness looks like, so we know what Christ-likeness looks like. It is God's Word that strengthens us to keep away from many sins and many harmful things. You could even say this, it's God's Word that has a cleansing effect on our lives. It keeps us, as one writer said, it keeps us from wallowing in filth more than we do. Now, Jesus is an example to us of the use of the Word to deal with temptation, right? Think of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. How did he answer the temptations? It is written. That's where Christ drew strength in those moments. That was his weapon in the fight. And it's the weapon that's been given to people all the way from the very beginning. Go back to human history. You've got Adam and Eve created in innocence. They were not without the ability to sin, you know, obviously. But they were created in innocence, put in a perfect environment. God was their counselor. They communed with God. God gave them His Word. It wasn't written down yet. It was given to them directly from God Himself. He spoke to them. So they had truth. So what happened? Well, Satan came to them. And what did Satan do? What was his approach? He began to cast doubt on God's Word. He then denied God's Word. He even distorted God's Word. So what should Eve have done? What could she have done? Well, she could have responded, not so much, it is written, it wasn't written down, but the Lord said. She could have responded that way to Satan, thus saith the Lord. And Satan would have been defeated. But Eve ignored God's word. She ignored what God told them, so did Adam. You can visualize this. Here they've been given a weapon, and they're just going to toss the weapon aside. And they relied on their own reasoning. 
Not Christ, though. He defeated Satan with the weapon of truth. So we as well, we can find that the way of purity, we can find what it looks like in Scripture. We find in Scripture help then to live according to what the Bible teaches so that it keeps us clean, so that it keeps us pure. If we commit ourselves to regularly reading it, studying it, pondering it, and seeking to obey it. There's the first part, the universal challenge. Part number two, the necessary balance. The necessary balance. The next verse, actually the next verse along with the remaining of all the 176 verses in the psalm, model something for us. They model personal commitment and dependency on the Lord at the same time. Personal commitment and dependency on the Lord. So there's a balance between those two. Let's see it. Here's one side. There's two sides here in this necessary balance. Here's side number one, personal effort. Personal effort. The psalmist knew that, so the psalmist exerted himself. He exerted himself with an all-out effort to grow spiritually. There was no kind of thinking with this psalmist, I'm just going to let go and let God. Look at what he says in verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought you. That verb sought conveys intense pursuit. And here it's the intense pursuit of God himself. By the way, just as a side note, I could say it anywhere in our study tonight. When people say, well, the word doesn't work for me. They haven't been saying this. With all my heart, I've sought you. I've had an intense pursuit of God himself. So in this context, the psalmist links together here the pursuit of God's word and the pursuit of God himself. You can't separate those two the pursuit of God, and the pursuit of the Word. We must be committed to God's Word because that's how we know God. And this verse personalized the truth already observed last time in verse 2. Here's what Kevin told us last time in verse 2. You can look back at verse 2. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. That was presented just in the third person. Here the psalmist is giving a personal example of doing that. With all my heart, I've done that. So the more we know the Word of God, the more we love the Word of God, the more we will know and love God. And you can say it in reverse. The more we love God, the more we will love the Word of God. You cannot separate those two. Furthermore, the psalmist was entirely sincere in this pursuit. He says it was with his whole heart. That is so important in keeping our way pure. One's whole heart must desire purity. It's not a a double-mindedness here. I I sort of want purity. No, one's whole heart must desire the Word and purity. Half-hearted commitment to Scripture does not bring about the cleansing effect. Half-hearted commitment to Scripture doesn't bring about its strengthening effect. Anyone who tries to keep God's Word half-heartedly will fail. So God calls for the pursuit of total commitment here. That's what He calls for. That's the standard. Yet the psalmist is a realist. I mean, he's, he's putting forth the personal effort. He's doing the work. But he's a realist. He knows he's not able to do it. 
He knows he's not able to be that committed on his own. So he cries out to God, which is the other side of the pursuit of sanctification here. So second, divine help. There's the other side. Side one, personal effort. Side two, divine help. Verse 10 goes on to say, do not let me wander from your commandments. Which is it, that we put forth effort and seek the Lord with all of our heart, or do we turn to the Lord and ask that He would help us not to wander? The answer is yes. Now, that term wander, not wonder, but wander, it's a very strong expression in Hebrew. It means something like to be in the passive, to be led astray. In the active is to lead astray, but to be led astray in this sense. Do not let me be led astray. So here's the psalmist pleading to God like this, which means this is his acknowledgement of his total dependence on the Lord. He needed help. I mean, he senses the pressure of the circumstances he lived in, the impurity of the world he lived in at that time. He, he senses how hard it is to be pure, to keep pure, to keep his way pure. He therefore recognized that he needed God's effectual intervention to not stray, to not wander from the biblical commands. There's another term. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. The man of God exerts himself, but does not trust himself. His heart is in walking with God, but he knows that even his whole strength is not enough to keep him right unless his king shall be his keeper. And he who made the commands shall make him constant in obeying the commands. That balance is something we articulate to you from time to time in various sermons and lessons by quoting to you the New Testament version of that balance, which is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Christians ought to be so familiar with Philippians 2, 12 and 13. That's how significant those two verses are for our walk with Christ. I mean, we have those landmark verses that everybody sort of memorizes. You know, John, well, yeah, I know I can tell you what, John 3, 16. Oh, yeah, Romans 8, 28, you know, all things work together for good. This is one of those. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the personal effort. Verse 13. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work it for his good pleasure. There's the balance. That's necessary in the pursuit of purity. Well, with that balance expressed, the psalmist moves on to mention then some practical helps that will benefit the child of God in the pursuit of purity with the understanding of that necessary balance. So that's part three. Part one, the universal challenge. Part two, the necessary balance, two sides of that, personal effort to find help. Here's part three, the strengthening practices. The strengthening practices. If I put some more thought into that one, I'd give it a better name, but that'll work. The strengthening practices. Too many syllables. What I mean by that, he starts listing some practices, some some choices that will accompany this pursuit, a genuine pursuit of purity, therefore practices that will actually help us in the effort, in our effort in this pursuit. So there's four of them here. There's four sort of corollary, accompanying, strengthening practices that are going to be there in the mix as we're going about seeking to keep our way pure. 
It's like four ingredients here of this thing. Here's one. Treasuring. There needs to be some treasuring going on. Verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Here's another one of the terms, the synonyms for God's word. It's the term word. You go, wait a minute. We just saw that in verse 9. No, you didn't. It's a different term in Hebrew. Not the same three letters, you know, D, B, and R, Devar. This is a different one. It can be translated word. It can be translated promise. It's derived from the verb that means to say. But regardless, the point is, it's just another synonym for God's truth. And the main point now is what the psalmist had made a habit of doing along the way, the way of purity, and that is treasuring. Treasuring it, the word. Now, this verse is very famous to us in the King James, right? That's what I grew up with. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Hid in my heart. That's okay, but don't misunderstand it. That could be misunderstood. I mean, we hear the word hiding, and it's like stashing it away. I'm just going to poke it down in there. That's not what the Hebrew word means here. It's not hiding it in the sense of stashing it away. That's why the translation treasuring is a good translation of this verb. This treasuring is not the same thing then as just merely reading the word. It's not the same thing as even mere memorizing the word. We might just jump to that and say, you know, memorize the word. Well, that's a tool. That's helpful to do. But the emphasis on this verb, treasuring, is on the understanding of what you're treasuring and memorizing, the understanding that leads to personal transformation. So wrap it all up in this one. It's the idea of reading it, studying it, yes, even memorizing it, but all for the purpose that the truth can be pondered and meditated on like a cow that chews the cud. <clears throat> I don't know much about that. I just happen to think about it. It's not in my notes. I'm just saying, isn't that what a cow does? I've, I've learned that somewhere along the way. Got any farmers here? Cow people? Okay. I think they regurgitate it back up and they chew it or something. I don't know. I've done that, just not intentionally. <laughs> it's that idea Put it in different terms, better terms than a cow. Good. Let me start over. We need to have our minds so saturated with truth that God's word is readily available so that we can recall it, draw upon it in moments of need, and then profit by it. And note the phrase, in my heart. That is a significant anthropological term in Scripture. It's the comprehensive term of what makes up the inner man. A lot of people, when they hear the word heart, you know, they think of the emotions, you know. This is broader than that. The term heart in Scripture frequently is standing for every aspect of the inner man. It's the seat of man's rational functions, I mean, you know, people say, you know, you're, you, you know, you know don't, don't make this decision, you know, based upon your head. Make it based upon your heart. That, that's a wrong dichotomy. That's Hallmark. 
No, it's, it's, the man, it's the seed of man's rational functions along with the faculties of his will, along with the conscience, along with the affections and desires, all the faculties of the inner man, the heart. So it's from the heart that comes the desiring. It's from the heart that comes the planning, the evaluation, the observing, the thinking. It's from the heart that comes volition. Therefore, all of our conduct, our, moral, our morality, our moral conduct is rooted in the heart. And there's verses that make that point. Like when Christ said this in Mark chapter 7. Mark seven twenty one to 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I mentioned this in a sermon just recently about motives, that we don't judge other people's motives because it says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 that the Lord will bring to light the things hidden in, in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, the deepest part of us. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul uses the, that idea of the heart to even talk about our giving to the Lord. Each one must do just as he's purpose in his heart. Hebrews 4.12 makes that great statement about the Word of God, the power of the Word of God. It's, a living, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not about chopping you up into pieces. It's about piercing into. It's able to pierce into and judge the deepest part of us, the thoughts and motives of the heart. So the heart is very important in Scripture, this idea. It's the symbol for the focus of life. This is the way our, our professor, beloved Professor is with the Lord now, Dr. Zimmick. He taught this at Masters and he taught it at, at Exposer. Same thing, that the heart is mission control center. And therefore, the point back to our psalm, that's where Scripture is to be treasured. Listen to the many passages that encourage the same thing. Psalm 37, 31. The law of his God is in his heart. Proverbs 7, 1, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you, meaning the heart. That famous verse about Mary, she was given the announcement from the angel about her pregnancy and giving birth to Messiah. What does she do? Luke 2, 19, Measure, tre- Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what that means. It, it, it's so part of us. We're so saturated with this that the inner man is, has been storing up Scripture. And therefore, the mind and the will is influenced by God, educated by God. We, in a sense, we're enthroning God's word in the heart. And when we do that, we're better equipped to respond to temptation. Just like Joseph did, by the way. You know the story there. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. She made this improper suggestion to him. And what did he say? Genesis 39, verse 9. In, in a word, he said, no, but there is no one greater in this house than I. And he who he has withheld, your master, your husband, has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? 
What allowed him to say that? What prompted him to say that? How could I sin like this against God? Because Joseph was familiar with God. He was familiar with God's character. He was familiar with God's ways. And it's those truths that he knew from God's law, that's where he learned them, that came to his mind. He regurgitated them. And it strengthened him in that moment to say no to temptation. Joseph wouldn't have been impressed with all the normal arguments in that situation, you know. I mean, a lot of people in that situation, what's going through the mind is, well, I mean, it's natural. Everybody does it. Nobody's going to know. I mean, it can't be wrong if we really care about one another. Those arguments meant nothing to Joseph because for him, immorality was wickedness. And it was wickedness because it was against the known will of God. And he learned the known will of God in God's law, and that settled it for him. God's Word had the effect of keeping Joseph's feet on the straight and narrow way. And our psalmist, back to our psalm, our psalmist knew that to be true about for him as well. So he set his sights high. His target, look at his target, verse 11. I'm treasuring God's Word in my heart. Here, here's the goal, here's the target that I might never sin against you, God. I mean, that's a pretty ambitious thought and statement. And this verb sin means to miss the bullseye. That's the definition of this one. So sin is viewed as a failure, as a deviation. The arrow goes off track. And in Scripture, this verb, therefore, refers to a very personal offense against God. Here's what God says to do, and it's related to Him, and we go this way. We miss that. So the point is that treasuring the Word of God, this strengthening practice, treasuring it will help in the pursuit of not sinning. I like what commentator Scroge says here. He summarizes what's being said about God's Word and the heart. The psalmist is talking about the best thing hidden in the best place for the best purposes. The best thing, truth, Hidden in the best place, treasured in the heart for the best purposes, not sinning against God. So there's one strengthening practice, treasuring. Here's the second one, praising. Praising, do that along the way. Now, we saw this in the Aleph stanza last week. There was a change of persons, how the the writer articulates the pronouns he uses. This Baith stanza reflects a change in persons. Here, right in the center of the stanza, the psalmist changes to the second person and speaks to God directly. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Those are words of praise and worship. And in our translations, when you see Lord in all caps, that means the Hebrew is Yahweh. The new Legacy Standard Bible, which I got a copy of just the other day, it has gone through and used Yahweh in all the places. It's everywhere. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the name that refers to his eternality, that he had no beginning, no end. He's the present tense, I am God. 
So what goes along with that, since that's who he is, what goes along with being Yahweh is his omnipresence, his omniscience. He knows everything. He's everywhere. So the psalmist here is blessing Yahweh. He's giving praise to Yahweh on the path of trying to pursue purity. And this is the bent of all true believers. We know who God is. And as well, we know that our whole life is in the hands of Yahweh, this eternal God who's the creator of all things. And so it's right and fitting for us to express faith and gratitude and hope by giving God the glory that he deserves, the blessing and praise that he deserves. This is interesting in the pursuit of purity. This is an important element. Regardless of the circumstances we're in, We should live our lives with this consciousness of God's worthiness and be quick and regular in expressing our adoration to Him. And this act of worship strengthens us to say no to temptation. However, notice that the psalmist was not only thinking of God's worthiness due to things that God has done in the past, God's past acts of faithfulness and help. Here we we see that the psalmist was anticipating, he knows all that's been true, has a lot to praise God for, but he's anticipating new expressions, fresh expressions of God's strengthening power. And that anticipation prompted confidence to ask then for more help. In other words, what we see here in verse 12 is the psalmist moving quickly from adoration right into petition. He knew that Yahweh knows all things, worthy of all glory and blessing, He knew that Yahweh is the teacher of wisdom, the teacher par excellence, so he moves from adoration to petition, verse 12, teach me your statutes. Right out of praise into that. Here's another synonym for truth, statutes. This term, by the way, is capturing the unchangeableness of Scripture, the permanence of Scripture, they're statutes. So the the psalmist articulates this prayer, teach me your statutes. It's a passionate request. And it indicates boldness and confidence. But even more, it shows once again the psalmist's absolute dependence on the Lord. Here it is again. We could call this, this is his declaration of dependence. The point is we cannot understand God's word by ourselves. We need God himself to be our teacher. So this is a strengthening practice in the pursuit of purity and sanctification. Be quick to praise God. Be quick to give Him the honor and glory and blessing He deserves. But it gives Him glory and praise to quickly and constantly declare your dependence on Him. That praises Him as well. Here's a third strengthening practice, treasuring, praising, sharing. Do that along the way, sharing. Verse 13. With my lips, I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Another synonym for the law calls them ordinances. This term could be translated judgments. It's, it's the word they would use to the decision that a judge would make about the affairs of life involving people, the all-wise judge making a wise decision. So he makes a decision, and then there's rights and duties that go along with that decision. 
so that the people end up dealing justly with one another. That's sort of at the heart of the term. So the psalmist is referring to God's word that way. He's the all-wise judge. He has made judgments. They are called ordinances. And so the psalmist says, they're there in the, in the word, and I share God's judgments. I share his ordinances. I share his judgments in, on things with other people. And that's appropriate for the believer to do. So think about the treasuring again. We've seen the need to treasure God's word, but we're treasuring a treasure. But it's not a treasure to keep to ourselves. We must proclaim the truth that we're treasuring. And obviously, this proclamation requires knowing what it says, personal diligence and knowing what Scripture says. We can't declare all God's ordinances here unless we know them, unless we study them, and that calls for time. Frankly, it calls for many hours spent poring over Scripture and hours that could be spent on other things that are less important. It is a fact. I have to admit it about myself. It's easier to admit it about you, but I have to admit it about myself as well. That when people say they don't have time to meditate on God's Word, somehow they find time to read blogs and they find time to listen to podcasts and they find time to read articles and they find time to watch television and they find time to talk on the telephone and so forth. None of those things are wrong, by the way. They're not wrong in and of themselves. It's just that when we say we have no time to study the Bible so we know His ordinances, yet we have time for so many other things, we're just exposing that our wrong sense of values, our wrong priorities. But the point is to master the ordinances so we can speak them to others. That didn't happen just by occasionally opening the Bible and reading it, you know, just a random verse or two here and there. You don't master it even by just listening to someone preach, as important as that is. You master it by spending time in it and studying it diligently. But think about something else here about the sharing. You're going to learn God's ordinances, in a sense, His judgments on everything, His perspective on all the issues. And you're going to share all that? Something else is needed, right? Courage. Courage. I mean, there was a day when the Bible was a popular book. It's probably the most unpopular book in the world now. I mean, just think about it. If on a daily basis you're sharing God's ordinances in the various kind of situations that you might find yourself in, students in school, college, I was reading something that listed several examples like this. Try this one. Openly oppose Darwin with Moses in a biology class in school. Openly share God's ordinances there. In a philosophy class, take issue with Karl Marx and oppose him with the teachings of Christ. Just oppose the idea that human nature is basically good in any kind of philosophy class or in conversation with other people. Proclaim the biblical perspective that there's none that does good, no one. If you have a geology class, stand up and oppose the theory of evolution 
with the creation account in Genesis. Take a stand against Freud or other well-known psychologists with the doctrine of original sin. Go to a local school board meeting, some school board parent meeting, and declare that we need to restore the teaching of truth in the classroom and that discipline needs to be restored in schools. Just openly declare the error of Roman Catholicism to people, call it heresy. Openly claim that the sign gifts are not in operation today. Let's take an example at work. Openly take a stand against your employer's capitulation to the LGBTQ plus agenda. Openly oppose any expression of the woke agenda with Scripture. Boldly share what Scripture teaches and you are going to find out the hatred for all the ordinances of God, okay, all of His judgments. But for the believers, God's Word is glorious. It's valuable. It's right. We must proclaim it. I mean, it is the wisdom that everybody needs in every context. It's the wisdom that our government leaders need in order to rule rightly. It's the wisdom that teachers need in order to help students. But it's not allowed. Our society then has become completely bankrupt. Yet we know we need to return to the standard of the ordinances of God. And we need to share those ordinances with people. That takes courage. And whoever the psalmist was, he took every opportunity to speak truth for the instruction of others. If it was Daniel, he certainly did that. He lived out, this psalmist, he lived out what Psalm 40 verse 10 says. Listen to Psalm 40 verse 10. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Look back at that verse again. Notice that the writer refers to the source of Scripture of being God's own mouth. It's all the ordinances of your mouth, God. So here on one one hand, he says, I'm the mouthpiece. With my lips, I do this. But what I'm saying with my lips is everything that's issued from God's own mouth. What comes out of my mouth is what originated in God's mouth. It's as if the psalmist is saying to God, with my mouth I speak those things which have proceeded from your mouth. He's just saying this is an important corollary to our own learning of Scripture and our own pursuit of purity. It's while we're learning it, share it with people. Here's a fourth Strengthening practice, rejoicing, rejoicing. Do that along the way as you pursue purity. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Here's another synonym, testimonies. This one points out the fact that Scripture contains warnings against sinners. It's like it's God's testimony against sinners, It's God's testimony of encouragement about to his own people. It's his testimony about the truth about himself. That's kind of wrapped up in the idea of testimonies. 
It testifies. So this verse, verse 14, is conveying the psalmist's deep-seated delight in these testimonies. That's what the verb rejoiced means in the translation I'm using. It says rejoice. You might have a translation that says delight in. <clears throat> That's a good translation. It means to exult, E-X-U-L-T, delight in. And this term even includes the nuance of the contentment of the heart that allows this kind of rejoicing and delighting. And the object is not merely identified as testimonies, but as the way of God's testimonies. There's that way word again. We've already noted that. It's not just knowledge. it's It's the way of living. So here is the application of God's truth. It's the incorporation of God's truth into the very fabric of one's life, every aspect to it. Applying it to our own ways so that character and conduct that are godly, infiltrate our thinking and our choices in life. So the emphasis we find in the stanza on an obedience. I mean, just think about this. He's hammering home the, the idea that there needs to be effort, that we've got to pursue holiness. God hates sin. We've got to do what is right and choose what is right. We've got to study the Word of God. Boy, it sure sounds legalistic. There's no legalism here. It wasn't a drudgery for this psalmist to do all this. It wasn't a drudgery to obey Scripture in all areas of life. He says, I rejoice in it. I mean, sincerely, out of his love for God and his love for God's ways, he desired to obey. He had great joy in being personally transformed. That's the way it should be for us as well. And notice what he compares his delight to. It's the exuberance of someone in possession of great riches. I mean, we get get excited when money comes in, maybe from an unknown source. Great riches. Here's another way to capture what he's saying. This psalmist understood that the Scripture's teaching is the priority That spiritual treasure is worth more than literal earthly wealth. And there's a lot of verses that say that. I've got about eight of them. Listen fast. Job 28, verse 15. Job says this about wisdom, godly wisdom. And we get wisdom from the Word. He says this. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. Proverbs 2, verses 4 and 5. If you seek her, and there it is that idea of silver in that context, if you seek her and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. If you search for her like that, like it's silver. My grandson enjoys that, and so I enjoy playing that with him. He's, he's big into pirates right now. There's little Lego blocks and stuff, pirate ships and pirates and things, and, and so treasures. So we have, a, we have a sandbox. We have a sandbox for him and a sandbox for Autumn. We tried one sandbox. That doesn't work. Two different agendas in life. So each get their own sandbox. And, and what Roman loves is digging for treasure. So we've, we've bought, and his other grandparents have bought all kinds of, you know, little cheap imitation gems and iron pyrite and things like that, you know. And he loves, we spread them in the sand. He loves digging in there for the treasures, you know. And so he has a little treasure box. He keeps it all in there, his treasures. 
I mean, it's like that. It, 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 that's what these verses are saying. I mean, you, you think of treasure. Man, wouldn't it be great to discover a chest of pirate's treasure, you know? If you seek for wisdom as much as you would want something like that, you'll find what the fear of the Lord means. You'll discover the knowledge of God. Proverbs 3, 13 through 15. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. Proverbs 8, several verses, 10, 11, 19. Take my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than the choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Proverbs 10, 22, it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. Proverbs eleven four. riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness does. One more, Proverbs 16, 16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So that's what our psalmist is confirming, the same perspective that he preferred a life according to the Word of God, which is the will of Yahweh, he preferred that over all riches. Do you know there's been many people through Scripture that have come to understand that even though they had the opportunity to have a lot of riches, even in Scripture. You think of men like Joseph and Daniel, but listen to what Hebrews says about Moses. Moses raised in the courts of Pharaoh, he was rich, had a rich upbringing. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Even in the midst of great wealth, he had come to understand it wasn't worth anything. It's people like that that give us the example of what it means to live with an eternal perspective and proper priorities. It really is just living out what Christ said and so succinctly in Matthew 6.33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and, and all these things will be added to you. The bottom line is God's truth, God's way, the psalmist says, is priceless. And this psalmist knew that. And therefore, he had discovered the way to genuine contentment, and he rejoiced in anything related to Scripture. More Scripture, more study, more learning. Oh, I delight in that. This intentional rejoicing in God's Word, that's something that could happen in your private times of devotion. It could happen in your witnessing situations publicly with others. But I tell you, an excellent opportunity for the rejoicing is, is in the regular services of the church by, by having joy, intentionally joyful hearts during the singing and the preaching. I, I don't think I am more joyful and content than when I'm here on the Lord's Day. This, this is the best. Singing songs of praise like we do here. So isn't it sad that we can find ourselves rejoicing and getting excited over so many things that are just part of this earthly existence, you know, things that are ultimately trivial. We see it in sports settings. I mean, people go crazy. Crazy over a sports victory. 
Or the other end, angry and despondent and and depressed over a loss. You see it in all the award shows, you know, when somebody wins an Oscar or Grammy. I mean, these tears, just overwhelming what this means. I think the best example, though, is that game show, The Price is Right. People go crazy there. I haven't seen it in a long time, but, you know, back in the old days, I used to watch it. People dress up, and you know how it works. Showing these different prizes, and you have to guess their value, and and the way it works a lot of time, you have to come closer to the right price than, than one of the other contestants, you know, and not go over and all that. And the one who wins, oh my goodness, jumping up and down and going crazy and hugging and crying with delight. The psalmist is saying, we have been given a prize worth far more than that. We have the wisdom of the word that is telling us who God is and what his ways are. It tells us about Christ and our, who our Savior is and teaches us about the assurance that we can have because we're forgiven of our sin. And it, it tells us what it means to have peace with God and then to know the peace of God and to have hope for the future. Those things are more precious than gold. Well, this perspective was real in the heart of this psalmist. He knew what true riches were. So again, as he pursued purity along the way, he was constantly treasuring, praising, sharing, and rejoicing. Here's the final part, part number four. We've seen the universal challenge, the necessary balance, the strengthening practices. Number four, the summary commitments. The summary commitments. He concludes this stanza by articulating his own resolve of how, I'm, how he was going to live his life. There's three commitments here. He says, first of all, number one, he's committed to contemplating the Word. And we've already said this. If you are looking ahead and wondering of this whole study of all these stanzas, is there going to be some redundancy of thought? Yes. Okay, there. He's committed to contemplating the Word. He says, I will do this, verse 4. I will meditate on your precepts. I will regard your ways. Other translations have put it ways like this. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I'll meditate on your your precepts, and in the translation, another one says, and have respect for your ways. Another translation says, I will muse on your precepts and look upon your ways. However you say it. Both verbs, meditate and regard, represent very strong, volitional, intentional commitments on the part of the psalmist. So the first one, he commits himself to meditating upon the truth. We've already talked about that. It's recalling what we've committed to memory and turning it over and over in our minds, just looking at it from every direction to consider the fullest implications that are there, the the, the broadest applications that could be possible. And here's another synonym, precepts. That one points to the details of God's instructions. That's that's what that word is really emphasizing, the details. He says, I'm I'm going to turn all the details over and over. God cares about the details of his word. And so did the psalmist. He meditated on them. 
And second, he does that as he's regarding or paying attention to anything it expresses about God's ways. Oh, it's saying saying something about God's ways here. I need to pay attention to that. God's paths, you translate that way. And it ends up then impacting our ways. Meditation in God's Word will lead our feet onto the right paths. And sadly, many people treasure the wrong things. They rejoice in the wrong things, and they pursue the wrong things, the wrong path. And regardless of how blind they are to this, on the path... It is guaranteed there has been no exception, there will be no exception. The wrong path has a devastating end to it, always will, either in this life or the next one. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. That's why it's so important to get our feet on the right path. It's the path of God's truth. That's the path of God's way. And the point is that if you're on that path, the right path is helping you avoid the slippery places in life. God's way keeps us away from the slippery places, the dangers. And the dangers are all the hidden snares of the devil, all the mines, all the potholes, all the bear traps, you know, set. So the idea here is that the Bible is like a compass Or to put it in nautical terms, it's like our chart that we're reading in order to sail. And I read something about that this week. Somebody reads the charts. The charts kind of mark the hidden traps. But it's not the hidden traps that they really need to know. They said, I just really need to know where the deep water is. It doesn't matter how many traps there are out there. Just show me where the deep water is, and I'll stay there. And that's true for us. We can't can't even spend our time trying to figure out what all the hidden traps are. You don't need to. Just know what the right path is. Just keep staying staying on that. To keep using sailing terms, we just need to know where the deep water is. And the Bible is our chart that marks the deep water for us the right way, the safe way. So our task is to know the chart, studying it, meditating on it. It helps us avoid shipwreck, helps us avoid the many worldly temptations and fleshly temptations that Satan relishes to use to bring us down. So there's one commitment. He's committed, I will, he's committed to contemplating the Word. Here's the second committed commitment. Number two, he's committed to enjoying the Word. He's committed to enjoying the Word. Verse 16, I will, I shall delight in your statutes. You think, yeah, we've seen this before. Here's that redundancy. Guess what? It's a different Hebrew word. Not the same term back in verse 14 where he said he rejoiced in the truth, and I said you could translate that delight. That was more the idea of exuberant joyfulness. This is a different Hebrew word that's referring to more of a settled, a sort of settled pleasure. Now, the two ideas relate ultimately to the same emotion, 
But along with using a different word, there is definitely something new added here in verse 16. Because of, of what he says in the future tense, these commitments, I will, I shall. If you look back at verse 14, he was saying what he had already done. There it was in the perfect tense. I have rejoiced and am rejoicing. Here it's the imperfect tense to talk about the future. This is what I'm anticipating that I'm going to continue to do always. Now again, you can get bogged down in the grammar, but there is the, the form of this is, is, is reflexive, and that means the form is pointing to self. It's, it's the way it's formed. He's saying that he's personally committed to enjoying himself. He's personally committed to seek his own pleasure and his own happiness in Scripture. So yes, we understand we do everything for the glory of God, but here's one place in Scripture where it's clearly saying, I I get a lot out of this. I'm enjoying it. I get pleasure. That should be our commitment as well. We're going to commit to contemplating the Word. We're going to commit ourselves to enjoying the Word. Here's the third and last one. He was committed to remembering the word. So he pledges this in verse 16. I will not. I shall not forget your word. Shall not. It's a very practical commitment. I mean, it doesn't do us much good if we're doing all this and then we just always forget what it says. I struggle with that. I mean, I got a, people say they have a mind like a steel trap. I don't. I have to read things over and over and over and hear people's names 20 and 30 times, you know, and make 15 mistakes along the way of what I call them. I have to work hard knowing anything. It doesn't come natural to me. So we must commit to keeping it there in our memory And the best way to do that is through ways of applying it daily. That's the best way to keep God's Word alive in our minds. Putting it into practice in our life experiences, proving it as we're, taking what we're learning, proving it that day in everyday affairs so that we're interpreting all of life through the light of God's Word. Testing it, proving it in the rush and the hustle and bustle of our lives at home, at work, school, play, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's times of trial or, time, or good times, both times. Doing it in times of trial and difficulty, putting it, proving it, putting it to test, applying it, test driving it, and doing it in favorable circumstances. Don't just coast in favorable circumstances. Go back to the Word and test things in favorable circumstances because we counsel people this way a lot. What might look like an open door circumstantially might really be a closed door biblically. So the point is resolving to remember scriptural truth. It's important. One commentator, Anderson, writes this. This involves not only one's memory but also a deliberate act of the will. And here's what he says that's so sobering. In the Old Testament, to forget God means much more than an inability to remember. It can be described as a guilty forgetfulness or as being false to his covenant and turning to other gods. It says that sometimes. They forgot God. 
didn't mean that he wasn't in their thinking. They turned to other gods instead. It's pretty serious, this volitional forgetfulness, and the psalmist knew that, so he committed himself to guarding against that happening. So let's ask ourselves, are we this determined to know and delight in and remember God's Word? It's what God expects. It's how we get on the path of pursuing purity. I mean, there's nothing in this world that's going to help us, nothing in this impure world We have to have something that's going to preserve us and empower us in the moments of temptation to say no. Something to enable us to live a holy life in the midst of wicked surroundings and philosophies and perspectives today and agendas. It's only the Word of God, studying it and treasuring it in our hearts, rejoicing in it. That's what the Holy Spirit uses us to grow. That's why Christ prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 17. He prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's our cleansing agent. And without it, we'll never live a holy life. Another commentator pointed out something interesting. I don't know how far to go with it, but it is interesting. This is the Baith stanza, B-E-T-H. Do you know what Baith? It's a letter, but it also means, it's a word in Hebrew. Do you know what it means in Hebrew? Bethlehem. What does it mean? Anybody know? House. This letter means house. Think about it. One commentator, Herbert Lockyer, made this observation. The underlying thought of this stanza is making our heart a home a house for the Word of God. We have to figure out what's the condition of our home then, our heart. Just a quick implication. When should we begin committing ourselves to knowing, treasuring, pondering, and applying Scripture? Well, the answer is as soon as possible. To live for God, begin at the earliest possible moment without delay. He's speaking as a young man. Obviously, what a wonderful thing. And some of you are very young here tonight compared to some of us. What a wonderful thing it is for you to begin all this in the years of your youth. Many of us can't say that. Not, Not everybody here had that opportunity. But what a blessing in life it is to be like this psalmist who made these commitments as a young man. But regardless of what our situation in life is, if that's not possible, there's still a sense that it's never too late to start doing what is right. Make whatever years you have left count for the Lord by making the same commitments we find in this psalm. Let's pray together. Father, we can't do any of this without your help. We, we need your help to have the desire, the motivation, to make the commitments, to live them out from A to Z. We need your help. We need the Holy Spirit's help to teach us the truth. Otherwise, we won't understand it. So we pray for that, Lord. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would be our teacher. Burn within us a desire to love the Word of God like the psalmist did so that we can pursue the way of purity 
and be pleasing to you. I pray for anyone here who's not even on that path. They see the path. They know what the path is, but the love of the world and the intrigue of the world and the curiosity of the world and the fear of missing out on something, the fear of not measuring up, I don't know what it might be, but you know what's in their hearts. Lord, take all that away. Give them faith to trust in Christ, to follow Him as the Lord on this path and to learn how to grow, to live a life that's pure. In Christ's name, amen.